Some of, I won't do a quiz. Do you know what it is, though? It's the scherzo from Beethoven's uh, Ninth. Um, I wanted to put it up here because I think it's a great illustration of a point I want to make today, that those things that you and I make or create are a reflection of who we are. The things that we make, the, the things that we control, are a reflection of who we are. And many people think that this is Beethoven's monumental work. In fact, I looked this up. Uh, music historian Nicholas Cook from Cambridge University called this uh, Ninth Symphony Beethoven's greatest achievement. And he said, in my estimation, possibly the greatest music composition of all. In fact, Beethoven's work was so consistently good that you might think that everything he did was excellent. However, there was his choral fantasy. I want to tell you about that. It was his first attempt to try to bring together things that before, now we do it so often, it's, it's common for us, but it was his first attempt to try to bring many different things into one composition. That would be uh, uh, instrumental solos and vocal solos and choir and orchestra all into one composition. So the premiere of this, I think it was 1808, the premiere, and I wasn't there, just to let you know. The premiere of this, I wish I had been though, I'll tell you why, of the choral fantasy, Beethoven himself, played the piano, and he conducted from the piano, and it was a disaster. The whole thing fell apart several times. Sometimes the different parts of the orchestra, the people got mad and started yelling at one another. At one time, Beethoven became very upset that they weren't following the score, and he yelled at them, but he also didn't follow the score very well. One time there was one specific section that he had told everybody, do not repeat this section, and they didn't. But he did. <laughs> the whole thing fell apart. Anyway, one very funny part of the history of this is that uh, after the music was done, Beethoven hired a poet to write uh, lyrics to the music. And to this day, we don't know who that poet was because nobody will own up to it because no one wants to be associated with a disaster because what we make is a reflection of who we are. Now, uh, here at Lake, we have people in all sorts of occupations. If you've been involved with any part of corporate America and really the entertainment industry too, everybody is concerned about branding in our organizations and what branding is you want to have something that's consistent with the whole organization because we know that if people get or experience something bad some product that's bad in the or they'll think that the whole company is flawed and so this matter of having having a quality control and a corporate brand is very very important because we know that what we make is a reflection of who we are and at last we get to the Bible this is a good introduction into what I want to talk to you about this third Advent weekend and what we find in this great text that Scott read for us. Didn't you think it was a great text? Colossians 1, 13 to 22. Now, when we look at this text, one of the things we're going to be thinking about is the argument that has been, I think, the most common argument in history against the Christian faith. I mean, throughout history and all around the world, when people hear about the kind of God we read about in the Bible and then reject God, this is the argument that, that they make because the world is to reflect something of the maker. And when you read the Bible, it's uniform in telling us that God is all-powerful, that he is good, 
that he's involved in the world. So, so that it all is to reflect who he is. And the psalmist would say that, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the maker. The firmament shows his handiwork. Now, do you see a problem here? If that is true, then why is there so much that is messed up in this world that God has made? All right. Uh, Like what? Maybe you can't think of anything messed up. I was going to say get a mirror, but I won't say that. Um, Natural disasters. Killing apparent innocent bystanders. Uh, The news was filled evil dictators seeming to profit as they oppress the very people they're supposed to be caring for. Uh, Here in our own community, our own church, loved ones experiencing painful, debilitating illnesses, uh, people dying prematurely, all the stories of the sexual abuse of children. I mean, I could go on and on and on, couldn't I? I'll tell you, I can hardly count how many times in my years as a pastor that when I have gone and talked about people, about who Jesus is and who who God is, that I haven't had some sort of a pushback that is something like this. If the kind of Bible that you, uh, God that you believe in and that this Bible teaches that God is, exists and he allows for this or that, and you can put in the death of my spouse, uh, the pain of my child. You can put in so many things into that place. If you, then I don't believe he exists. Or they'll say, if he does exist, I don't trust him. Now, I'm sure that those who come to an 11 o'clock service at Lake Avenue Church have never had a thought like that cross our minds. But if you have never had it cross your mind, it, fills, it crosses the Bible's writers' minds. You find it in a lot of the Psalms, Psalm 73... Lord, I I can't figure out why evil people prosper in this, your world. Where are you? And people like Jeremiah, his whole life he asked this question. You can see it, Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 20. So this is a question that that Christians have always asked. And um, to this, Colossians 1 will turn to us and just say so openly, yes, in this world, verse 13 of chapter 1, there are still dominions of darkness. It will tell us that. And at the very end, it's going to tell us something that's very personal and painful. Yes, there is evil in this world, and look inside yourself, you're a part of it. It will say that. Uh, We have all been enemies of God, it tells us, by our own choice. So, So it is there. And the Bible will never say anything like this. God saying, oh yes, yes, there's some problems in the world, but um, there are parts of the world I didn't make. And it never says, oh yes, there are problems in the world, but that part I don't control. No, 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 the Bible tells us who God is. And then forces us to come to grips with this. And essentially, what we're going to be seeing today is that God knew what he was doing. As much as the pain and the evil is enormous in our world, he knew what he is doing, and he's not going to leave it that way, and someday we're going to have all of these things. This problem is, how can God be this, and how can our world be like this, and how can that be reconciled? Chapter 1, verse 20 says, someday all things will be reconciled. Someday all things will be made new. Someday we will see that what God has done reflects His glory. That's the word. It reflects to this world the greatness of our God and all of these qualities of love and compassion and grace and power and majesty and goodness. It will all be seen. And that's why Jesus came. So that's what we're going to think about on this third Advent of, Sunday of Advent. 
And I'm going to start by thinking about who Jesus is. And actually, we have one of the most majestic texts in the entire Bible to think about it. The part I want us to start with is verses 15 to 20. If you have your Bible, just look at that. It is worth memorizing. I think it was an early hymn in the church that Paul said, that's what I'm talking about. That Christmas song you just sang, that's what I'm talking about. So verses 15 to 20 is a hymn in the early church, which we'll look at it, and it teaches us who Jesus was. So who was he and who is he? So here's who he is. The Bible is going to say he is God, he is creator, and he is re-creator. He is God, he's the creator, and this child who came is going to recreate what has gone wrong. So let's just look at that quickly. Uh, he is God. I'll tell you, this hymn, verses 15 to 20, it is like a breathtaking ride through the teaching about who Jesus is. There are just three phrases I'll point you to. There are so many more. But was, he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. I'll just say this. Have you ever had a religious person come and knock on your door, usually in twos, and now it's harder to knock on people's doors because we like our privacy, so now I get people stopping me at service stations and they'll essentially say, look at this verse and they'll say, this shows us that Jesus is not God. He's only the image of God, a replica of, a facsimile of. He is not God. Anybody else ever had that happen? Or I just draw people to myself, don't I? If you have that happen, don't buy what they are saying. The word translated image is icon. And the word meant a visible manifestation of an invisible reality. Does that make sense to you? A visible manifestation of something that we can't see with these physical eyes, but it is real. And as such, what the Bible is saying is that Jesus is the physical presence of God come to this earth. So the, the Bible will repeatedly say, you and I were made in the image of God, which is a great thing. But Jesus is the image of God. And in fact, Jesus would take this on himself. There was one time near the end of his life that even his disciples hadn't gotten hold of this. And Jesus said, I've come to die. Do you remember John 14? And then Philip came to him and says, this death stuff, I don't really like that. Just show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? Philip, you've been with me all this time. And don't you know that when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. That's what's being declared here. Second, he is the firstborn over all creation. Verse 15. So that person at your door at the service station says, okay, okay, that icon thing, that didn't work, did it? But look this, they'll say, Jesus is the firstborn. See, he was born. He's a creature too. There was a time when he was not. And what do you say, Lake Avenue church person? Don't you say, I can hear you say it, not so fast. Did you notice that it tells us he is firstborn over all creation? And, and did you happen to notice verse, the very next phrase? For in him all things were created. All things, and in case you miss it, things in heaven and earth, visible things, invisible things, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things. I mean, when you look at that, you can't buy that. Uh, firstborn, then why did he use that phrase? It's hard for us to understand it, but it's a word not talking about a time being a time when he was not. Firstborn talks about the supremacy in a family. Uh, some of you understand this well. 
uh, I love Lake Avenue Church and, and Pasadena for, this, for many reasons, but one of the reasons that I love it is we just have people who come from all over the world, and many of us here come from the kind of culture that Jesus grew up in, which has extended families. I mean, most American families have been nuclear families. You know what I mean? Extended families. And where you have families where the whole families are, are connected in so many ways, then the firstborn, you know what that is? That's the one who's at the top of the family. The firstborn is the one who had all the money, had all the inheritance, had all the status. The second, third born, we just hope that firstborn's going to be a kind person and help us out here, Right? And that's what, what's being gotten at here. And really the powerful point that's being made here is the point that believers in Jesus have always held to. That Jesus is a person distinct from the Father, but He is one with the Father. He is the eternal Son. So He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all things that's been made. And then He just puts it flat out in verse 19. All God's fullness dwelled in Him. And the way, the way that I put it is that all that God was and is, was and is in Jesus. All that God was and is, was and is in Jesus. It used to be when I thought about this doctrine of there being one God eternally existing in three persons, I tried to think, now what's that like? And one of the illustrations I used to think of was the illustration of an egg. I think I have a picture. Look at that. That's what it's like, I used to think. You know, an egg has a shell, do you see that? And the egg white, and it has, has the yolk, and yet it's still one egg. But that's not a good description of who God is. Um, it, it is a good illustration of this, that there are many things in this world, the way that God has made it, that are more than one and yet are one. So in that sense, it's good. But I'll tell you, that's not a good illustration of who God is. Because I'll tell you, if you go to the supermarket, and you buy a dozen eggs, and when you get home, all that you have is the shell. You're not going to say, I have the whole egg, right? Anybody else agree with me? I mean, all that is an egg is not in the shell. And all that is an egg is not in the white. And all that is an egg is not in the yolk. But, but God is not like this. All that God is, was and is in Jesus. And if you say, that's mind-boggling, Pastor, I say, so it should be. If you and I would not have our minds boggled, our, infinite, our finite minds, by an infinite God, He would not really be God. So He is God, all the fullness dwelling in Him. I mean, Charles Wesley said, you just have to sing about this, and we sang about it today, but I don't know if you noticed this line. From now on, I never want you to miss it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. He is God. Now, let's think about how he relates to us, how he connects with the rest of this created world. And it tells us that he is the creator, uh, verses 16 and following. And, and three little words point to something really marvelous. Everything was made in him, through him, and for him. Everything was made in him, through him, and for him. In him, created in him. Uh, do you see it in verse 16? Does that sound strange to you? We, we usually don't talk about things that way. Thing, uh, this was created in me. But that's the word that's used. And the, the language, what it's talking about is when, when everything was made and we get to the end of Genesis 2, everything was in the sphere of his control. There were no other dominions, no enemies in this world. 
And so when he is in control, when all things are created in him, then everything really does reflect who he is. Uh, his goodness, his love, his power. And the Jewish word is when he's in control, when God is in control, there is shalom, peace. Things are reconciled. Things, things make sense to us. And I'll tell you, when we had the opportunity, we walked away from him. We'll talk about that. But when we come back and place our faith in Jesus, the, the phrase that is used for being a Christian in the New Testament most frequently is, we again become people in Christ. Our lives start holding together in his control. So all things are made in him. All things are made through him or by him. Verse 16. So that before there was anything in this world that could be called a thing, he was. Before there was anything in this world that even could be called a thing, Jesus was. And so what the Bible is saying is you and I can look at anything in this universe and we will know that it was made through his agency. Now, there are going to be some things in this world that you and I look at and we say, why on earth did he make that? Like what? Like that. Or maybe like, or maybe like that. Or maybe like, maybe like that. There are all sorts of things we're going to see in this world. And there are some things that just make no sense to us in the moment. Parasites. There's so many things in this world that, that make no sense to us. So I, when you go home, Maybe one of the things that you can discuss is, why did God make those things? And if you say, we better call Pastor Greg and ask him if he knows why, I'm going to delegate that to Pastor Chuck so that he can answer that. Because there are many things in our world that I don't understand about why God made it. But even with our limited understanding, what the Bible is saying is that we see that all of creation is made through him. And then finally, it was made for him in verse 16. It's an amazing assertion. It's really what I got at at the very beginning. If all that we make points to us, that's what he's saying. There's going to come a time when we see all that is and we know it points us to his glory and to his majesty. What we make is a reflection of who we are and he is God the creator. Now we finally start getting to that point. Why isn't it all something that reflects to his glory? Because Jesus is also the re-creator. And what this hymn goes on to say is eventually the time is Jesus came to begin a work. That eventually when he is done, all of it will be recreated. While there are things now that we say, look, this kind of a God can't be reconciled with this kind of pain and evil. The time is going to come, he says, when all will be reconciled. All of it will make sense. At the very center of this hymn is verse 17b. One little phrase. In him all things hold together. If you were singing this hymn and they put it into the, a hymn form like we sing them, where we often have a chorus that goes over and over again, this would have been the chorus. In Jesus, all things hold together. John would put it, he's the logos, the reason. If things make no sense to you right now, when he is done in him, it's all going to hold together and it's going to make sense. A few weeks ago, I um, took us to some of the very last words of Jesus in Matthew 28. You remember where Jesus would remind us before he went, he said, my work isn't done, but you need to remember that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I went at length to try to point out what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming that he had authority over every moment and every event in history. He has authority over every part of our natural universe. 
on those windstorms that swept through Southern California and all of the snowstorms that go through Iowa. He has authority over all other authorities, political, satanic, military. He has authority over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever been lived or ever will be lived. That's what he claims. So I, I, I preached this, you know, I was pounding on the pulpit and screaming, kind of like I do all the time. And some of you, after every service this happened, people walked through the back door, and though they didn't quite say it this way, would say something like this, Pastor, that was pretty good rhetoric there, and we really believe it. Most of you said that to me. But your sermon does bring up a huge question. If Jesus made it all and is in authority over it all, why do so many things in our world seem to be outside of his control? And I'll give you as simple an answer as I can put it in the Bible. Because in his providence, in his eternal wisdom and providence, God made a choice to make people in his image. Who are those who are made in his image? Here we are. So and when, he, when he made us that way, he, in his image, he made us in such a way that we would not be robots or minerals or even plants and even have something that went beyond uh, other uh, living creation. That is, he gave us this incredible, powerful awesome gift of moral responsibility only to human beings that he give a you shall not and then having that ability to decide whether we would surrender to his rule and reign by faith or to resist him because we had that ability from the very beginning we chose to resist rebel and we have ever since and, and so to take that seriously means that every time that we would resist, does he just wipe us out? No, what is the result of that? The necessary result of that is that there are, as verse 13 and 14 say, there are in this world dominions of darkness, and we are a part of it. Well, look at verse 21 once again. You too were once alienated from God. You were enemies of God because of your own evil behavior. And so we come with that question that so many people ask. Why would a good and powerful God who's involved in the world allow so much pain and evil in his world? And it is a question that should be asked. We need to, become to, to wrestle with that. But I'll tell you, when we ask that and then we see ourselves, there is another question that we must ask. You're here with me, aren't you? Because you need to ask this. Why does a good and powerful God allow me in his world? I mean, I know myself. And if he's just going to wipe out any dominion that stands up, why does he allow me in his world? Why does he have hope for me in this, this world? We, we look at this world and yes, nothing is all that it should be. But he says it's not all that it will someday be. And I look at myself and I say, why am I not all that I should be? And he says, just wait. Be in me and someday you will be all. That you should be. See, there is hope. At last we get to Christmas. God loves us. He loves what He made in His image, even though we've been flawed by sin. He has not given up on any one of us. He has not given up on you as you come to this church. 
And he came. That's what Christmas is about. He came as the creator into his creation with this goal of recreating what he loves. He came on, I call it a great rescue and reclamation mission. The, the one through whom all this world was made entered this world that he created. The one without a beginning was born. And again, Wesley just said, we have to sing about this. Uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. I know big words. Think about what it means. God himself taking on flesh in this world. And I'll tell you, when he came, he took on the great enemies of creation. Sin and death. Verse 18. Will you look at that again, this one phrase? Firstborn from among the dead. He experienced death. God died. I think I wrote, I just started writing about this. Beginningless, creator of all, fullness of God, dead. God, real God, became flesh, real flesh, not a hologram or a ghost, lived, bled, sweat, cried, and then died. Why? And his goal was our reclamation and recreation. Another Wesley hymn. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explain God's strange design? So Jesus defeated sin. He didn't sin. That's a miracle. Just think of that. <laughs> Tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. He, he defeated sin he de and he defeated death. The grave couldn't hold him. And now the promise that all who place their faith in him, this one who shed his blood on the cross, will again be in Christ. Uh, verse 14, sins forgiven, brought back into the sphere of his grace, his love, and his remaking. He, he's the head of the church. So when you trust him, he brings us into the church. And the church is simply his people. We're like in a family we grow within this place with him at the head, with him being the one who's the Lord. You and I begin to grow to be what he created us to be and he won't quit with us until he's done with us. Philippians 1.6 The work that he has begun in you and me and in this church he will bring to completion. We hold on to that. We hold on to that. When we try to envision what we will be like and what this world will be like when he is done He's trying to help us to see that. In that time, everything will be reconciled. Yes, there are things in the world you can't be reconciled, but evil will be dealt with, whether through what he bore for us on the cross or whether in that judgment that is to come. I, I urge you to find that evil that we've engaged with by trusting in Jesus. He, he lived the life you and I have failed to live. But then he was willing to die the death we should so that we don't have to. So in him we are set free. And when he is done, you and I will be conformed to the image of Christ. And when he is done, all will be made new. No more of these evil dominions. No more pain, tears, sorrow, failure, death. Until he's done, that second advent, the second coming song that we all think is a Christmas song, Joy to the World. 
I just want you to think, what it's talking about is when he comes back and finishes this thing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, so let earth receive her king. And then on, no more let sins and sorrows groan. No more let thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. For when he comes, he will rule the world with truth and grace. All right, so that's who he is. I'll calm down for a moment. How do we respond to who he is? This recreating and creating God. And the first thing I just want you to do is to acknowledge that verse 21 is true, that we've all walked away, we were all enemies, we've all done wrong, and we need his forgiveness. And I want you to trust Jesus. So I don't understand everything about you, and the pastor's talked long up there, but I'll tell you, I know I need Jesus. I know what he, I need what he's talking about. I want you to give your life to Jesus. Every Advent season, I use one passage over and over again. First time this Advent season, but let me tell you about it again. John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, who's in the whoever? Anybody want to vote? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have the life of God, eternal life, because God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world. He sent his one and only son into this world to rescue the world through him. Thank you, Lord. And when he is done with that rescuing reclamation effort, verse 22 of Colossians 1 is going to happen. We will be reconciled by Christ's physical body through his death. And then you and I will be presented to the Father holy in his sight. Without blemish. Free from accusation. Do it now. So we're in this process. We declared that that's what we're going to be. You and I aren't there yet. The reclamation, reformation, transformation work is happening. So a pastoral piece of advice I'll give you, I want you to surrender daily to his rule, to his kingdom. I want us all to learn to just pray. Get up in the morning and say, just as Jesus taught us, Lord, today your kingdom come, your rule come in my life, your rule come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I'll just give you a pastoral warning too. Sometimes that progress in our lives will be painfully slow. Anybody else notice that? It will be painfully slow. But he will not give up on you and me. I, w- I called my closest friend, Jamie Rankin, and he'll be here the next couple of weeks. So come, we might do a song together, we'll see. But he and I began talking, and then he wrote me this wonderful note. And this is what he wrote. He's, he's reconstructing his house. I guess it's a mess. So here's what he said. I look at the construction site of my house. Wires dangling, wood exposed, drywall unpainted, molding unfinished, appliances installed but not hooked up. And I think to myself, this isn't what I wanted that room to look like. And it goes on and on and on like this, with constant delays, weather, no materials, delayed permits, I grow more and more impatient, thinking to myself, why on earth did I decide to do this? Then a bit more gets finished, and then a bit more. The contours take shape. The drywall is patched and spackled. Then it gets painted. Then the molding around it is painted. The lights are installed. The tile is set. And slowly, ever so slowly, something beautiful emerges. 
but it still isn't done. It still isn't all I envisioned it to be. I have a picture of the, unfin- of the finished project. I know what it's supposed to be like. I've planned it, drawn it, redrawn it a dozen times. I've seen it finished in my mind's eye. And I think it will be beautiful. But as the process of creating it drags on with delay after delay and mistake after mistake, all I see for a long time is unfinished, unbeautiful, unappealing. How frustrating. And I've thought several times, my unfinished home is a glimpse of the way my father views my growth. He sees what I am, not finished, but being recreated. On my way to being the way he intended me to be from before all creation. And he also sees what I will be. My finished human soul. Already shining and perfect. Reflecting his glory. But it's not that way now. I'm not that way now. Not by a long shot. How frustrating. But in the end, I will be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. And the room will be finished. Though I'm more sure of God's work in me than I am of my work in my house. Brothers and sisters, there is so much wisdom in this. And for many, many people, uh, the, the room really isn't finished until the owner fully occupies it. And that's what I'm calling for. Having us look for dominions not yet given in our lives and saying, come in. Come in and do your work in me. I'm going to stop there and come back next week to the other point. I have to mention it to you. The other point is, as he is doing his work in us, a part of, of his work in us is that he sends us into the world to tell others this good news really is amazing. As he's doing his work remaking us, he sends us out to tell others, I know I'm not finished yet, but I have some good news for you. Uh, Your life can be what it was made to be. And, And he sends us out to also show what God is like to the world, to show some of his love and compassion and justice. Do you know this is the text, this is the passage that led a man named Robert Rakes so many years ago to start Sunday schools. And the early Sunday schools in Great Britain were not uh, just like we have in church. It really was he saw that there were children who weren't learning to read. I mean, many, many children in Great Britain who weren't learning to read. And he thought, we need to do something about this in the church. So he started Sunday school, bringing them in and teaching them to read. And within just a couple of years, 25% of the children in Great Britain were learning to read in, in church Sunday schools. It was this passage that sent him out, being so thankful for what God is doing, and saying, I've got to take this to others. This is the text that Wilberforce, he looked at this and he says, God's still working in me, but look, there are things out in this world that don't reflect him. There's slavery in this world. People made in God's image are in slavery and that's wrong. And he went out and began, you know, began this work that before he died, slavery was abolished in his country. So I, I just, I'm next week, I'm gonna, it's got to change our lives. But I'm going to end my message at the same place that I began it, uh, with Beethoven's Ninth. You know, um, that inferior work, the Carl fantasy, 
I think many of us would have just said, that's a disaster, and thrown it out, right? Do you know what he did? He, he took parts of that, the, all the ideas and, and some of the melodies, and he started reworking them and recreating them. And he took them and he put them into another work. Uh, one of the most familiar is Ode to Joy. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee that we sing so often. Which, which work can we find it in? In his ninth symphony. His, his worst work became his greatest work. And that, that just, when you think about that, God, who is a creator far beyond Beethoven, takes us as we are and continues to do his work until someday we will look like Jesus, remade, refashioned, beautiful, without blemish, without anyone bringing an accusation. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That we come to this church to hear and to say, I'm going to follow that kind of Jesus until he is finished in me. And that when we leave this place, we know that the whole world needs to hear until all is reconciled. Until all this earth declares the greatness and beauty and love and shalom of our God. May it be to his glory. Amen. Amen.